0: And that's something that I always suggest to entrepreneurs is understand who you are. Before you start building your company, before you start building a product, understand who you are and what it is that you stand for and what is it that you don't stand for and really get comfortable in that because that's gonna help guide you through this process of entrepreneurship.
1: Yo, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Build Your Network podcast, the only top-rated show committed to helping you grow your business, foster real relationships, increase your authority, and build the network of your dreams. Let's get into the show.
2: All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Build Your Network podcast. Catherine, thank you so much for joining me on today's show.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to chat.
2: Yeah, excited to have this conversation. And uh, before we dive into all the amazing things you're doing right now, including your book, Take me back to say middle school, Catherine. Uh, what was oh, your uh, early <laughs> early life like? What did you think was on the horizon for you?
0: Yeah, you know, early Catherine was living in Minneapolis at that time, which is where I'm from. And you know, I wanted to be an economist growing okay. up. You can imagine a, a fourth grader wanting to be an economist. I I liked money, um, <laughs> and, and so and and thought I was going to be an economist or like present, either one of those sort of things I thought I was going to do. So small um, goals. Uh, just small have... goals. I was always like, always kept, you know, my goals very, very small. I was just always into everything. I was always oh. industrious, always an entrepreneur, always creating things and in, in groups and was one of those kids that was like friends with all sorts of children. So it wasn't like one type of group, but it was right. friends with the jocks and the drama club geeks and so forth and so on. But definitely can have a vision for the future. Um, and a very big vision for herself.
2: Right. Where did that come from? Did you see other people that like bore those same traits or were you kind of an anomaly in your immediate circles growing up?
0: Well, you know, in, in 1980s, nineties, Minnesota, it wasn't, you know, <laughs> like, I mean, there was Prince, of course, but, sure. but it wasn't a lot of necessary folks for me to look towards who were going like, and doing big, big things other than princes. It really came from my parents. Uh, my parents took a very large risk in moving our family from Milwaukee, Wisconsin to Minneapolis. They're not that far geographically, it's only about a five hour drive, but very far culturally and mentally completely different types of, of places. And they took this risk and it paid off. And very few times do you have as a, particularly as a young African-American kid, or to see your parents or someone who looks like you take a large risk and it pay off. Mm. And I got to see that very early and it had a big impact on me. So it it made me not be fearless because I knew that you could actually win. I had actual empirical evidence that you could take a risk and win. And then that helped me to then be able to take more risk as well.
2: What what were some of the first risks you took stepping into your own, like moving past, These abstract visions of oh, I want to do this, or I love money, or I want to be in some kind of position of leadership. What was the first time that you took a step in a in a practical direction to try to accomplish one of those goals?
0: The first time I took a big step, this would have been in high school, where I ran for a executive officer position in my student council. I was a freshman. I was a rising sophomore. I was running against a rising senior, and there had been very few people of color on the executive committee of our student council. My school was very much, uh, very racially mixed, but most of the leadership had always been with relatively rich white kids in our school, kind of controlled it. You know, all the movies that you saw, the 1990s and 80s, yeah. that was my school. Mm. And so I took this risk and, and ran against this senior. And it was interesting enough, it was like a vicious, like anti katherine campaign that went on. <laughs> So yeah. I like that in high school, and I won, which was like shocking to everyone except you know the seventy percent of the kids in our school who weren't rich white kids. It was pretty much everyone else like voted for me and not this person. And it showed me like oh my goodness, not only can I take a risk and win, but I can convince a lot of different people who are very different than me to go with me on whatever idea or journey that I'm going on. And that was a really powerful, powerful lesson for me to learn, especially at that age.
2: Right. Well, it's, it's huge. Like you said, there's, there's, you know, there's not a lot of opportunity to see that kind of success, especially at the time period we're talking about, you know, like it's, you cite kind of the luck of seeing parents take those risks and having it pay off. But I think one thing that you've obviously noticed the importance of is showing other people what's possible. Um, yeah. and it seems like that was something that came very, very early on. I mean, as early as high school, did you recognize that you were intentionally doing that at the time that like, oh, I need to show other people what's possible, or is it just something that you kind of did? And now in hindsight go, oh, that was actually pretty powerful.
0: I didn't know at that time because I was 15 years old and, you know, yeah. most 15 year olds know nothing. Right. Um, but yeah, I didn't, I wasn't like, you know, that, that precocious at that age, but sure. I think, you know, now looking back, you know, definitely it changed the trajectory of my high school. You know, after people saw me do it and when a lot of other people started running and not just, you know, other African-American students, but Asian students, Latino students, students who were part of the LBGTQI community. Like all these people were like, wait a minute, like those rules, those structures, those barriers that we thought existed. You know, Catherine just like proved to us that they don't really exist. So now we're like coming through. And one of the most gratifying things that had ever happened to me was I was asked to come back to my high school to do the commencement speech Mm -hmm. um, at the 25 year anniversary of the commencement speech I I did when I was a student. I later became my class president. And it was amazing. one, it was 5,000 people, which was like blew my mind. And then two, just to see how much the school had changed the Victorian was a somalian woman it was there was a number of transgender students there was it was just like so much more diverse and to be part of that legacy and then to be able to go back and say to them you know i was you 25 years ago i was quirky i was different i looked different i did all these things differently and to be able to say to them that you're perfect in your imperfection like who you are is perfect and to be able to give that message, which was a message I wish I would have received, was just really one of the highlights of my life is the, was to be able to do that. So I didn't know until maybe 10 years later, 10 years after I graduated from high school, I actually ran into someone. I was at home visiting Minnesota and I ran into someone and she had said to me, thank you for being nice to me because you were, one of, you were a popular kid. I never saw myself as popular, but she's like, you're a popular kid and you were one of the only ones that actually spoke to me and said hi to me and treated me like a human being. And again, it was one of those moments of, you know, and I thanked her for sharing that because I think as human beings, we often hear when we do wrong, but, but we don't hear as much as when we do well. And so it was just such a gift that she gave me in sharing that.
2: Yeah, that's huge. I'm curious on this point. Because there's a lot of, and I think across the gamut, I mean, from the time we're little kids, you know, we're told, oh, you can be what you want to be. Like, like when you're, when you're in kindergarten, everyone's telling you that, you know, you can be what you want to be. You can, you can do whatever you want to do. And very quickly, it seems like the message starts changing to, well, let's keep it realistic. Let's try to do this. Or like, hey, maybe you can't do everything you think you can do. And so I'm, I'm kind of curious for people who are growing up in situations where, you know, they're being told, hey, you can do whatever you want to do, but then they're facing systems that are showing them, hey, there's a lot of restrictions on what you can do, or they're yeah. facing circumstances or, you know, discrepancies in how they're treated versus someone else. You know, what keeps somebody from feeling just completely shut down and powerless to try anything new versus those who say, okay, there's a challenge. There's an obstacle. There's maybe more challenges and obstacles than say this demographic of person or this, this kid down the street or this neighborhood. What's the difference there in saying like, okay, I'm still going to take action and try even if there's more odds stacked against me.
0: You know, there was one thing that I did growing up that I didn't even realize I was doing. And I talk about it in my book, build a damn thing is really this development of your personal core values, like who are you as a person? And I started developing who I was and what I stood for as a person from a very early age. And why that is helpful, particularly when you're facing these incredibly strong headwinds. And as a a black woman, I faced the most craziest headwinds you can think of is that it helped center me in what I was doing and why I was doing it and who I was doing it for. And what was the end goal that I really wanted? And so as I had these headwinds, I was able to like fight through it because I knew why I was fighting for it. And I think sometimes if you don't understand why you're doing something and how it relates to who you are as a person, outside of money and all the other things, then it can be hard to really jump over those hurdles or to break through those walls. But when you understand you have that core values, your sense of purpose is very clear, it's not easy but you can break through it and it does help. It's a tool that helps you break through it. And that's something that I always suggest to entrepreneurs is understand who you are. Before you start building your company, before you start building a product, understand who you are and what it is that you stand for and what is it that you don't stand for and really get comfortable in that because that's gonna help guide you through this process of entrepreneurship, which is tough. Entrepreneurship is a marathon. It is not a race. It takes a while. So having that core values, your personal core values as that core for you, it's really it's it, it helps you get through. It's the oxygen that you need to get
2: through this marathon. When you entered into entrepreneurship and started stepping into that world, which is already a difficult world, what was kind of your first experience like like what was your kind of emotional response to being in that world for the first time and starting to see like, oh, this is not this is not going to be a piece of cake or something that's easy to walk through?
0: Well, my first true experience in entrepreneurship happened in fourth grade, and I had a lucrative friendship bracelet business in which I hired my brother as my first celebrity spokesperson, who was a big Mm -hmm. high school basketball star, and now he's in sales at Zoom. So I'm like, okay, I gave you your first sales role, but what it taught me was to have my own money. It taught me that we all want to live a life that we control. We all want to live a creative life that we control, and entrepreneurship gives you the tools to do that. And I saw that in fourth grade because the money I made was my money. And I got to decide what I wanted to do with my money. If I wanted to spend it all on garbage pail kids, which happened several times, I could do that. I could do that. If I, one time I took my family to dinner, and you could imagine as a parent, my parent now, your nine year old's like, I got the check. You can, yeah. <laughs> one of my parents were like, what, the, what is she doing in elementary school where she could like just take the check? But I did. I paid for my, you know, family's dinner, it gave me this ability to live live a creative life that I controlled and not someone else's. And so as I went through my career and then became an entrepreneur again with the budget fashionista, I just saw how it opened up possibilities to me. I could be around who I wanted to be around. I could do the work that I wanted to do. I could buy what I wanted to buy. I could wear what I wanted to wear. Like All of those rules didn't really apply in the same way. I got to create my own rules for my company and for my space. And that was really, really big for me. And to have that power was amazing. And that's one of the things that entrepreneurship does give you is that power to control your life.
2: Well, I mean, it didn't take long into your entrepreneurial journey that you I mean, and this is the funny thing about money, right? Is like it exposes more of who we really are. And so going from, you know, being a, a young kid trying to turn around and help other people unknowingly at that point, but that's what you're doing. It didn't take long into your entrepreneurial career before you started turning around and trying to help other people as well. How quickly did you make the decision to jump in and start helping other people navigate the, the choppy waters of entrepreneurship and business overall?
0: Probably from the very beginning. I mean, I think even with the budget fashionista, you know, it was the early days of social media and content online. This is before people even thought of influencers and being one of the early, early influencers. I started the budget fashionista in 2002. So this was like yeah. 20 years ago. Like, right. You know, and now seeing where influencers are, you know, we were such a small community. People didn't really value content on the web. And so that allowed us to really work together. And so as I grew up in that space and became, you know, an OG, like really saw it is really my, my role to teach others. Um, you know, how much should you get paid? Those sort of questions that no one, everyone talks about, or how do you structure a deal and all those sort of things. I thought it was really my, my role to be able to do that. And so it's always been a part of who I am. I think for me, you know, I firmly believe in this idea that everyone can win, I don't believe that if I win, you lose, or if you lose, I win. I just don't believe in that dichotomy. And so I'm always working in my life to create a situation where everybody wins.
2: Yeah. yeah. Is is that pretty much what led to you uh, starting a venture capitalist fund with that in mind? Was that the, the driving force behind that?
0: Well, originally
2: I wanted to start Genius Guild
0: really in 2012. But it was very, very early. So the company and organization I founded before, Digital and Divided, was like the precursor to Genius Guild. And But the timing was off. No one was investing in Black women general partners. In fact, in 2012, there were no Black women general partners of a VC fund, period. Okay. So, so it wasn't like there was a track record in which people could invest and in. there was just no one. in the first one came about a year or so into us doing Digital Nevada, and, and it was Keisha Cash. And she was like the first Black woman general partner who ran her own fund. And so it wasn't like there was any role models for me to do it. The timing wasn't right. Capital wasn't flowing as, free, as freely. It's yeah. all these sort of things. And so I ended up doing a, a for-profit and then turning that for-profit into a nonprofit that's excelling today. It wasn't until really t- March of 2020 when all of these things in my life collapsed together, it was COVID. I'm a trained epidemiologist, so COVID happened. Then you had, you know, a couple months later, George Floyd murdered in Minneapolis, which is where I'm from, about six blocks away from where I went to elementary school. And me watching TV, knowing all of these folks who were involved in, in that fight, And also watching on TV and seeing, you know, some of my closest, dearest friends who were doctors and things working in in epidemiology and feeling distressed and feeling down and feeling dejected. It was just all these things came together. And I felt quite helpless. I think like most people did at that time. However, I wasn't. And it's something about when you're met with these great challenges, like this sort of space where nobody has an answer and nobody had an answer in March, 2020, April, 2020. No one knew.
2: No yeah, one Not knew. even March, 2021.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Maybe even March, like no one knew. And as a result, it created this space. It created a space for people like myself to do some things differently. And so I took money from a vacation that was never, ever going to happen. It was a cruise to Alaska, leaving from Seattle and like, the beginning of April, 2020. Again, it was never going to happen. <laughs> I don't even know if that cruise has still happened two years later. <laughs> There's yeah. something that never going to happen. And I started what was called the Dooney Fund. The Dooney Fund is named after my grandmother. who's a Black woman, um, Black woman entrepreneur. All right. And we gave out these micro grants of $100 to Black women entrepreneurs. At that time, if most people will remember, it was impossible to get a PPP loan unless you had a private banker. If you did not have a private banker, you were not getting a PPP loan. Um, And that in fact affected everyone who wasn't a rich white guy, right? I was just saying to someone, even poor white guys couldn't get it. Like nobody could get it unless you were in this very sort of specific group of people. And so giving out this like $100, it wasn't going to change anyone's life, except it did because it was encouragement. And it was encouragement coming from someone like me who has this perception of success, right, that people see as successful. And the impact of it was enormous. There was a number of other folks who were inspired to create their own funds that are still going on to this day. We ended up giving out over $150,000 worth of microgrants to over 1,500 Black women entrepreneurs. It fundamentally changed my life. It showed me that, A, I didn't have to ask for permission that a lot of the rules that were created were arbitrary and created for whatever reason, but usually not connected to anything. It showed me the challenges people had around capital, particularly when it came to people of color. I got a lot of really strange comments from people of, well, what happens if they use the money to get their nails did? And I said to this person, I said, look, this is April, 2020, where we can't even get like Amazon to deliver to our door. So if you can get somebody to come into your house and do your nails for you and doing your nails is what helps you get through the 13th hour of Zoom calls that you have that day, then get all your nails done. I hope you can get a pedicure too with this money. Whatever you need to be able to get through this time period because that's the point is to encourage you to get through it. And it was just really profound. You know, people wrote me, one person wrote me and said, you know, I was really down and I didn't think anybody saw me or believed in me. And when I got the duty fund, I felt seen. And she said, I took and printed out your email and I put it above my computer to remind me that somebody sees me and that I can do it. And that gift that that person gave me is really powerful. And so I start to think about Genius Guild. In many ways, Digital and Divided was a, was a sort of MVP of Genius Guild, and how, how do we do venture differently? How do we rethink that? Is there a model in which everyone can win in this? Is there a model where we're not extractive? And what does that look like? And that's where Genius Guild came in.
1: This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Travis. Just go to Indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. I am
2: curious. Like you mentioned, there's obviously, it's one of those, when you're in any kind of role playing the part of of advocate on behalf of a community or a, a people group or fill in the blank, one of the emotions that's constantly felt is there's this optimism that things can get better. And there's this frustration at how long it takes for things to get better. Mm-hmm. You know, And you mentioned, obviously, stepping into the influencer side of things and business world really heavily in 2002. It's two decades ago. And there's been probably, I mean, on the outside, probably a lot of progress. But like you mentioned, even in 2020, you're looking at the at the world and, and at the responses you're getting to doing funds like this and going like, why is this such a regressive view of this yeah. issue, you know, do you feel like things have drastically improved in a lot of ways? Where do you feel like more work needs to be done uh in how we address and engage with the issue of, you know, people of color and business and, and all of the different, I guess, conscious and unconscious, you know, prejudices that exist in business? Where do you want to see change still happen? I know that's a huge question.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, I think, you know, as I was writing Build a Damn Thing, I was just really reflecting on my career and my life and ups and downs and the, and the places I saw challenges and the challenges that I had and how did I overcome them and all these sort of things. Writing a book, particularly when it's a book about you, is one of the most reflective processes you can possibly do. I encourage everyone to try to write some sort of book that takes a part of their life because it really makes you examine how you've lived your life. And One of the things I think at the core of that question is really whose work is valued, whose economic output do we value? And we don't value everyone's economic output the same, even though particular groups may produce more, actually. They actually may be more valuable to the market, to the economy and other groups. We don't value them the same because of, you know, race, gender, what have you. Mm -hmm. There is a strong argument and a lot of empirical evidence about the value of mothers how valuable moms are. And me, I mean, we can even just say all of us came from a woman. Like so, you know, all of us came from a woman, whether she continued to be our caregiver or not, we all came from a woman. Some woman, you know,'s body allowed us to grow and, and we nurtured and came from that. And so the value of, of women and, and mothers is is known, right? It shouldn't be up for debate. No. So why are we debating childcare? Like, why is that even a thing? Why are we having to do motherhood manifestos and things for people to appreciate motherhood? Why, why is that a challenge? when We all can agree that the health of women is very, very important to all our health, since we all come from women. The same with, you know, communities like the Black community who built America, very much so whose ideas have created whole genres of music. You know, People often say jazz is the only original American art form. I would say hip hop is probably the second one. You know, Both those came from diverse communities, from Black and brown communities, right? These things that have completely changed culturally and have led to all this sort of stuff. And so why aren't Black people's work valued? And so it goes back to whose work we value, um, whose economic output we think is important. And until we have conversations around that, we're going to continue to have these sort of friction points. We're going to be, it's going to be 20 years later, and you and I are going to be having these conversations again, until we have a sit down and understand the value of everyone's work and input.
2: Before we talk about the book, because obviously Mitch, I want to dive dive a little bit into that, because I would say if you ask a majority of people, they would say, oh, I don't have any biases, or I don't mm-hmm. have any any, you know, people's default response. So oh, I'm not racist. You know, I believe everybody has yeah. value and all this sort of thing, but unconscious bias is a really interesting thing to me because it's something yep. that exists in all of us, you know, in a million, yeah. in a million different ways, like not even just with race, like with economic status and with, with gender and all these different fill in the blank issues. Do you think the reason this has taken so long to minimize itself or to for us to move past this as a society Do you think it's because most of it is unconscious and we haven't addressed it? Do you think it's not enough conversations happening from one group to another? Like, why do you think we keep getting roadblocked on some of these issues that we've been dealing with, I mean, as a country since the beginning? Americans in the culture
0: don't have a really good way of admitting when we're wrong. (laughs) You know, we're not taught that. We're we're Americans. We're We're, we're like exceptional, right? American exceptionalism. So we're not really taught that. And as a result, we're we're not very self-reflective. We don't really look back at all very much and to see and understand what has happened. You know, it's really interesting. In the 2016 election, I had a friend reach out to me. He's a very successful white male in tech, very, very successful. And he was like, so upset, so upset. What can I do? Blah, 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 the election. And I let him, you know, kind of, bitch to me for like three or four minutes. because I'm like, dude, you're like got more money than God. Like you're, you'll be okay. And then I said to him, you have a birthright, meaning you are this wealthy white guy. And whether you want it or not, people give you privileges that you don't even ask for. You go into a store. They assume you can buy anything in there. I go into the store. Sometimes they assume I can't. Sometimes they assume that I'm going to steal things, but you your identity you get the benefit of the doubt you have that's your birthright you get this benefit of the doubt you get you get to move in spaces that I would never be able to move in right again so so understand that don't apologize for it because you can't get rid of it even if you wanted to like people give it to you whether you want it or not so don't you know stop apologizing because you can't do anything with it. But what you can do is start using it and you can start using it to bring other people along and empower people. When you are in You know, one of the exclusive, if you're at Davos and you notice there's no people of color, next year say, hey, I'm going to bring five or six amazing, you know, Black, Latinx, women entrepreneurs onto my private jet with me and take them to Davos. And I'm going to personally introduce them to all these different folks. Like, you can do that. You're you. You have that power. And so after I said all that, he said something to me that continues to blow my mind. And he said, you know what? I never look back. I was so busy looking forward and saying, you know what, I'm not Steve Jobs. I'm not at that level. I'm not this. I didn't realize that I was ahead of 99.9% of everyone else. So I was so focused on what was in front of me. And I thought that was so fascinating. And how many people are so focused on what's in front of them that you don't take a little peek to look back and say, oh, you know what? Maybe, maybe I have some privileges that, you know, were just given to me like a birthright and how do I use that to help somebody else? Because I can't, because I'm me and I'm I'm in this position. And so I think that's the challenge is no one's looking back. No one's looking to the side. No one's seeing like who's who's left behind because we're not taught that, right? We're taught to keep moving forward, focus on the goals. And then when we find out that there's a whole ton of people who are behind us, and I include myself in that, I come from a place of privilege now. We're not taught as Americans to admit that we're wrong. (laughs) And that maybe we made a mistake or maybe, you know, we, we didn't pay attention to others. We're just not, we don't have even like a lot of language around that in our culture.
2: I'm glad you, I'm glad you give that answer. And, and um, for, for clarifying on that, because like, that's one thing that, you know, again, I think when you have certain privileges and, and, you know, I I was reading the title of your book and I was like, well, I started as a poor uh, white guy. So I guess it's half in there, Uh, (laughs) but, but it's one of those things though, where there are things you know like i grew up in southern california i was the i was the minority in my group but that what yeah. that means is i got to be around people who shared their experiences of what it was like to be profiled about things or or mm-hmm. what it was like growing up in certain situations and and so you know one of the things though that that always comes to mind is you know sometimes you see people say you know oh there's these privileged fill in the blank whether it's wealth whether it's race yeah. whether whatever that is location that they grew up in and sometimes it's easy to go like, well, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to just get rid of all that stuff and then start from ground zero so it could be equal? And and I love the idea of auditing yourself to say like, where can I bring value and try to help somebody along? On the flip side of that, uh, one thing I'm curious about is I, I interviewed someone uh, about a year ago about um, gender inequality. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the things that I thought was really funny in the book is she talked about fogalitarians. Ah, uh, people that you know have a token female name on their board and they think mm-hmm. they're doing this great work, or these people that will use certain language that sounds very inclusive, but they're really not helping. Um, so you mentioned the example of you know bringing people along or or helping fund certain projects. How can people avoid, just doing something to meet some kind of arbitrary quota or number yeah. versus like making sure there's an authentic intent to help. There's a lot of, I mean, we see this a lot of time in yeah. big companies, like, hey, we've got this higher that hits this percentage. Now we don't have to worry about any of these issues because we've yeah. hit our, our number. And I, I don't think that's helpful either.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm of the mind of get in how you get in, right? <laughs> and so- <laughs> right. Track, um <laughs> regardless
2: of why they wrote like it, right?
0: get yeah. in the door because because yeah, right. once you're in then you can you can change right mm-hmm. and we we're seeing a lot of that happening and so i and i definitely don't put pressure on people of color to to do that and even answering this question is really kind of hard for for me to answer because i'm always being inclusive and so it's really a question for those who aren't or who are finding it difficult who are in those sort of positions and so how are you thinking of this, like, what are you going to do within your sort of spaces? I think that the best way to do is to get started and not to get so bogged down on the corporateness of it, you know, that like, if goals is the only way you can get this done and get in more diverse folks, Mm -hmm. then do the goals. Like, if that's how, if that's how you're going to get the diversity that you need, then do it. Um, I'm not. And then you can have deeper discussions about how to make it more meaningful and things, and like, that. And things like that. the whys things like The Because you don't want to get so bogged down, particularly if you have a traditional corporate structure, right? Mm-hmm. We have a board and things like that, that you get so bogged down in the why that you don't do it. You don't actually do it. And so you don't want that. And then you can start having these deeper conversations internally.
2: Yeah, love that, love that. Well, uh, I want to talk really quickly about your book, uh, Build the Damn Thing, uh, How to Start a Successful Business if You're Not a Rich White Guy. What is maybe the... I have to imagine, and I haven't written a book yet, but I have to imagine that there was one driving thought in your mind as you wrote through the book that, you know, you're like, man, if my readers could get this one thing when they pick up the book, this is the goal. Did you have something like that for you as you were writing?
0: It really was this idea that we all want to live this creative life that we control and entrepreneurship is a tool for us to do it. And that when you are a founder, who's diverse, I call in the book, builder, when you're a builder, you have to do it differently, but the rewards are so immense for your efforts. And I think that's the whole point of build a damn thing of like, first of all, build it, build a damn thing. (laughs) And then two, just that we can do it Mm -hmm. and we can do it in a way that allows us to still maintain who we are, as well as do it in a way That inspires other people, which is something that I've been doing my entire life. Just by building the damn thing, you are inspiring a number of other people to do the same.
2: love that, love that. Well, if you're listening to this episode, be sure to head to the link in the show notes and grab a copy. And as always, do it right now. Don't add it to a list to do later because uh, we always set these long lists of books Mm -hmm. aside. (laughs) Uh, Order a copy of the book right now. It'll be a surprise when you remember later when it shows up on your doorstep. But. For now, I want to move us into our random round. I want people to get to know you just a little bit more in the last okay. few minutes of the show. First off, the question that we ask everybody that comes on the show, and we've talked a lot about community on this episode, so this is uh, this is an important topic. Do you believe that who you know or what you know is more important and why?
0: Definitely who you know. Who you know gets you in the room. What you know gets you to stay.
2: Perfect. Love that. Um What profession other than your own, do you think would be fun to attempt?
0: I would love to be a professional swimmer. I'm not good enough to do that, but in my mind, I could be a professional swimmer.
2: Uh, If you could sit on a park bench with anybody past or present and talk to them for an hour, who would it be and why? Oh, that's
0: a hard one. But I think it would probably be RuPaul because one, I mean, he's just fascinating and the empire that he's built is pretty incredible while also uplifting a community that was virtually invisible to majority of Americans. And so definitely, and and we would also be like fabulously dressed too. So
2: that would be fun. (laughs) (laughs) What is your favorite way to learn? Is it books, podcasts, audiobooks, video? What's your favorite way to consume new information?
0: You know, I would say it's books, but also talking to people and listening. Like I love to learn from other people. I love to hear stories. And with books, I'm, not a, I'm actually not that big of a nonfiction person. I actually like to read fiction because I feel that it expands my mind in ways that is very different. It gets me thinking in a different part of my brain than you know business books, Straight business books
2: do. Uh, give me a glimpse of your morning routine.
0: I'm usually woken up by my six-year-old um, <laughs> and he comes in and we snuggle for a little bit. And then I really am like such a mom. Like, I I get up, I make his lunch, I make his breakfast, I get him ready for school. Um, And then I try to go to the gym for a little bit as well. And then get started on all the mini Zoom calls. I mean, now we're starting to meet with more people in person, which is great. Yeah, that's pretty much my day. I live in Chicago. I live near the lake. Hmm. So when I can, and it's a beautiful day, I actually will go and just take a walk by the lake, which is pretty amazing. Lake Michigan is massive for those who don't. Um, no, Chicago. And so, and and that's pretty much my morning.
2: It's yeah. being a mom. Yeah. No, I, I have a four-year-old and I I sometimes I listen to uh single entrepreneurs who are like, Yeah, I do my 40-minute meditation and my ice bath <laughs> and my I'm like, how much time do you have? I was like, I get up early so I can beat my daughter to waking up and yes. then I spend some time when she's up. So I appreciate the yes. morning routine. What's your go-to pump up song? Oh gosh. That's this, so is always the hardest question this is always I the have, one that
0: everyone's like, I don't, I don't really. have this a song, but I have a playlist that I made and it's called bad bitches nice. and it's just a bunch of great songs. I would say, you know, I, I think if I had to think of two songs, it would be, I get it done by a rapper named Tamara bubbles. It's actually a the theme song for my podcast, Well, mm. oh, it actually it's called self-motivated and the, the refrain is self-motivated. I'm self-motivated. It's like such a great song. Like it totally gets me, gets me going. And it's probably um, a song by a rapper called Young Baby Tate. These are all like millennial women rappers, but oh God, I forgot the name, but it goes, I am healthy, I am wealthy, I am rich, I am that bitch. I'm gonna get that bag and I'm not gonna take your shit. That's like the (laughs) word, it's like um, like, I'm I'm respected, I'm like, you know, she goes on and on like, and it's like, and it's a mantra that you just say to yourself. And so if you can imagine being on the treadmill and you're rapping, and people can hear you like, I'm healthy, I'm wealthy, I'm that bitch. I'm going to yeah. get that bag. And I'm not going to take your shit. You know what I'm It's like, all great and so, until
2: you're a six-year-old saying that in school. Then you've got to- Exactly. <laughs> <another situation. laughs> exactly. Um, what is something that you're not very good at? Singing. I am
0: that person that disproves a myth that all Black women can sing. Not me. <laughs> I can't. I know it. I'm
2: okay with it. What is the number one place for people to connect with you online the most? Probably the best places are Instagram um, and Twitter.
0: Twitter is hard because there's just so much noise in Twitter now, but Instagram is probably the best. And definitely for anyone who buys the book, and I encourage everyone to buy the book, not just because I wrote it, but it's actually a really great book. (laughs) You know, make sure you ping me and let me know how you're using it, what tips have worked for you, your thoughts, even send a picture of you with the book. Um, we have a hashtag, build a damn thing. Just make sure to use a hashtag. which just at me so that we know that, that you've done it. Um, but those are the, the best places. And we try to be really online quite a bit, monitoring our social media accounts. Uh, LinkedIn, to a lesser degree, is, is popular with us. What's the username for that, for Instagram? So Instagram is hi, I am Catherine. And Twitter is just Catherine Finney.
2: Perfect, perfect. Well, if you're listening to this episode, be sure to, number one, grab a copy of the book. Number two, connect with Catherine over on social media on any of the platforms mentioned. and Be sure to post a picture with the book uh, using that hashtag. But uh, Catherine, thank you so much for a wonderful conversation and for sharing so many insights today
1: on the episode. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much. It was so much fun.
2: Awesome. Thank you.
1: Hey, hey, thanks for listening to this episode. That's it for today. As you all know, this show is completely free. Our only ask is that if you found anything valuable in this episode or in any of the episodes that you've listened to, then share it with somebody else and leave us a quick rating review in whatever platform you're listening to right now. It would be super, super helpful for us. Uh, So that's it for today, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in. Catch you next time.
0: Chime Feels Like Progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bank Bank NA or Stride Bank NA members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com/slash disclosures for details.